Well, good morning. My name is Stephen. I'm the pastor of church planting here at Fellowship, and it's good to be together with you. This summer, we have been working through a series called Hope in Suffering, How the Gospel Transforms Our Suffering. And so as we've been talking about suffering, the messages up to this point have been focused on suffering from the perspective of us as the sufferer. And all of us face suffering. But today we're going to talk about suffering from the standpoint of how do we relate to someone else who is suffering. Just as we all suffer, we we all know others who are going through suffering, people that we care about, people that we know. And so how do we then relate to them? How do we understand that? And we're going to look at that from God's word together. This is the part of the service where we worship God through hearing from his word. And so would you join me as we pray and ask God to speak to us through his word. Father, we thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love through Jesus Christ, your son. That you gave yourself as a ransom for the many. And that in Jesus Christ, we are saved. We thank you for giving us your word. Would you... Holy Spirit, illuminate it to our minds that we would hear from you and be transformed by it, that we would love you more and that we would live more like you together as the body of Christ and also as individuals. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. When I was in my early 20s, I moved from my hometown where I'd lived my whole life in Iowa to Chicago to go to seminary. And so I lived in downtown Chicago, and there I experienced something as a kind of small-town America young man that I had not experienced much in my life up to that point. And that is, wherever you go in downtown Chicago, you run into people who are panhandling. They're asking for money. Sometimes they'll approach you with a story and say, hey, you know, uh, can you help me out? I'm down on my luck. Other times they'll just be sitting in a, beside a building or in an alcove or something like that with a cup or something else for people to drop change in. And this was kind of a new experience to me to run into many people uh, doing that pretty much everywhere I went. And so as I did that, I would, I would feel sorry for them. And so I'd take whatever change or, you know, a few bucks that I'd have and I would drop it in their cups. And as a poor seminary student, I ran out of cash very quickly And I didn't know what to do. And then I remember having a conversation with some friends, and they were like, oh, I never give money to those people because they're probably just going to take that and, like, buy alcohol with it or drugs or whatever. So I never bother. And I thought, well, that's a convenient uh, solution to that problem. So I can just uh, stop feeling sorry for them. And, And maybe really I was just giving money because it made me feel bad if I didn't. So I could just give them that. So I thought, oh, I'm just going to stop doing that. And after a while, I just stopped doing it. And then Before long, I didn't even notice the people who were there, the men and women who had passed, many of them everywhere I went, and I just didn't notice them anymore. You just get used to it. But then after a while, I thought, well, is that really the correct approach? Where now I don't even see them anymore, and I don't have compassion for them? And I realized in these these different situations, on the one hand, I was probably giving more just out of my own guilt, and on the other hand, I was just totally ignoring them. But what does it mean to truly be compassionate in those kind of situations. Well, that's one example, but there's many examples 
that we could come up with? What does it mean to be compassionate toward your neighbor who has a good job and has everything he could possibly want but doesn't know the Lord? What does it mean to be compassionate toward your loved one who is suffering the loss of someone very close to them and they have grief that they're bearing? What does it mean to be compassionate toward someone who's dealing with chronic pain and illness? So today we're going to talk about compassion, and I think it's helpful as we think about that to have a definition. What is compassion? And so a dictionary definition of compassion is concern for the suffering or misfortunes of others. And if we think about it, I think a lot of people, especially Christians, but other people, when they think about compassion, they might think about Jesus. They might say, well, what is Jesus? Jesus is a compassionate person. We know about his ministry on earth. He was compassionate. So we could look to Jesus and see what compassion is like, and that's a really good idea. But often, we have a misguided view of Jesus' ministry in terms of compassion. And so that's what we want to look at today and see together really the answer to this question, which is, what is biblical compassion? What does true, godly concern for the suffering of others look like? And so if you would, if you would turn with me, if you have a Bible, the scriptures will also be on the screen. We're going to look at Luke chapter 15. And Pastor Mark has already read a section of that, but I'm going to read the intro again, verse, the first three verses, and then we're going to jump down a little bit. So follow along with me as I read. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that is Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. And then jump down to verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field, his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. I want to take this story and use it and look at it to understand what biblical compassion 
is. Now, at the outset of this parable, we have to notice that Luke, our writer, gives the occasion for Jesus giving this parable. That's not always the case. Sometimes it's just the parable. But here, he gives us the occasion. That's the first three verses. So the tax collectors and sinners were coming to listen to Jesus. They were coming to hear his message. These are the outcasts, the people that no one liked, the people that everyone thought, you know, they're beneath our dignity. But they were coming, they were drawing near to Jesus to hear him. And so the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're grumbling. They're like, Jesus, this teacher, he's receiving these people? Like, why would he hang out in their company? And then it says, and Jesus responded to this situation by giving the parable. And so we can see on a large scale, scale level, this parable, I think Jesus is talking about on the large scale, it's Israel, the people of God, and the Gentiles. But on a smaller scale, I think he's also teaching these individual groups who are listening to him. The religious people who are kind of standing back going, oh, grumbling about Jesus, and the others. And these, these two groups are represented by the two sons in the parable. Because Jesus is teaching this in direct response to the situation that's happening. The other thing we have to notice here that's interesting is that Jesus tells three parables. We heard the first two. Pastor Mark read those for us earlier. But he tells three parables, but actually one. They're actually all one. Because if you notice, in verse 3, Luke says, And Jesus began, and he told this parable, singular. And there's three stories. There's three chapters to it, if you will. And so it's one parable with three parts, and they all kind of go together to show us the reality of what Jesus is teaching. So you have the the lost sheep, and you have the lost coin, and then you have what we're going to focus on, which is the lost son. Now, we usually call this the prodigal son, but I think it's actually probably better to think of it as the lost son. Because of the three parables, the lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. So let's dive into this story a little bit as we see uh, uh, how it unfolds and the depth of what Jesus is teaching here. The first thing we have to notice from this story that I just read about the son is the utter shame and dishonor that this younger son brought upon himself and upon his family. It's almost impossible to overstate how, how shocking and shameful this behavior is, okay? If you think about it, in a first century family culture, for the son to do what he did. So first he goes to his father and he asks him for his inheritance, which is basically tantamount to saying, Dad, I really wish you were dead. I, you know, I know you're probably going to kick it one of these days, but I can't wait, so give me your inheritance now. That's pretty insulting, Then he leaves his family behind, not long after that, right? As soon as he collected it all, probably counted it up, okay, I got everything, I'm out of here. Now, we as modern people, we move around a lot. But in traditional cultures where you have agriculture and farms, who's going to take over the family farm when dad can no longer do it? So he leaves all of that behind. He's rejecting his whole family, his whole tradition, his Parents, his grandparents, his great-grandparents, all of that heritage, all of that tradition. And he just says, see ya. I don't care about you at all. Now think about this. This is a Jewish audience. From a Jewish audience, they are living in the promised land. 
They have all the stories in the Old Testament about the promised land. God provided it for them. This is their land. This is the one place where they're supposed to live. God told them that. He said, don't leave this land. If you do, bad things are going to happen. Now, what does the parable say? He left that country and went to a far country. Now, if you're a Jewish family and you leave that country and you go to another country, by definition, you're going to a what country? A Gentile country, right? There's no other Jewish country to go to. There's only one promised land. He's leaving all of that behind. So he said to his father, I wish you were dead. Give me all your money, what the fair share that's coming to me. I'm going to leave all of my family behind. I'm leaving my religious practice behind. I'm rejecting all of that, and I'm going to go to another place. In a shame-honor culture, this is about the worst possible thing you can do. You have to imagine Jesus telling this story and all the people, their jaw dropped, like, this is horrible. This guy is awful. But it gets worse. It continues on. He squanders everything with profligate living, waste and excess. The next thing we see in this parable is then a crisis arises. So he goes off, he spends all his money, and then there was a famine. Now, that's a big crisis, but it's not the real crisis. It's a mighty famine. It arose in the land. So now he doesn't have anything. He, he, he can't care for himself, so he has to hire himself out as a bond slave to one of the citizens of that country. He continues in his descent, in his de- decisions. And so the master sends him out, says, go t- take care of my pigs. Again, pigs are unclean. This is a Gentile. He doesn't care about the, you know, go feed the pigs. Pigs are unclean. Pigs are dirty. So he goes out there because he doesn't have anything. He can't, he's got to find some way. And so he's tending the pigs. And then it says he's longing to eat the pig food, the pods that the pigs had. How low is this? He's eating along with the pigs. But actually, he's not even eating with the pigs because it said he'd long to have the pig food and he doesn't have it because it says no one would give him any. Well, who's he asking? The pigs won't give him any? Nobody else will give him. He's tending the pigs. Nobody cares about him. He's actually lower on the rung than the pigs. Because the pigs have somebody to give them food. He doesn't even have that. So he's way down here. That's the crisis, but it's actually not the real crisis, as we'll see in a second. So he comes up with a false solution to his real crisis. He realizes, why am I sitting here starving when he, I could be hired out as a bond slave to my father, and he has servants, and he has those people, and they have more than enough to eat, so I could go back there. And so he plans what he's going to say. He says, he's going to say, Father, I've, I, I've sinned against heaven, which is just a reference to God, essentially. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just let me be your servant so I can have some food. That's his plan. He's going to say to his father, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. I'm no longer your son. And this statement in Jesus' parable, as Jesus is telling this, reveals the real crisis of the story. The real crisis is there were two sons, and one of them is no longer a son. The son has been lost. 
That's what he says. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And we realize that this is the real crisis because this is also what the father says. We're going to jump ahead a little bit, but look at verse 24. At the end, he says, this, my son, was dead, and now he's alive. He was lost, and now he is found. We also know that this is the, this is the crisis, this is the pivot, this is the tension, because it's, the, again, mentioned at the very end. I didn't read that part, but if you look at the very end of the chapter, verse 32, as it ends, he repeats the same statement. My son was dead, and now he's alive. He was lost, and now he is found. That's the real problem. Now, you would understand this. If you, had a, if you had a child who is lost, who is gone, who is no longer a child of yours, you would grieve over that, right? Some of you have experienced that. Some of you are experiencing that right now. That's the crisis. Yes, you would be uh, sad about the suffering that they may be facing. But the issue is not for the father. The issue is not the food. The issue is the son is lost. And then, as the, the son comes back, we have these verses. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and had compassion for him. And ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now think about this. The father sees him from a long way off. Does the father know from a long way off that he's been hanging out with the pigs? That he doesn't have any food? That he's going to come back and say, hey, can you make me a servant so I at least have something to eat? No, the father doesn't know that. What he knows is that his lost son is on the horizon. And so he acts. His compassion causes him to act. And the father had compassion on him over what was the real crisis. His compassion is not rooted that he was eating in the pigs. His compassion is rooted in the fact that the son is no longer a son. The son has been lost. And so the father does what only the father can do. The father restores him as a son. Just going to read this, verses 22 to 24. Actually, I'm going to back up. I'll read a little bit of 21. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let's celebrate. For this, my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Craig Keener notes this. He said, The best robe in the house would belong to the father himself. It's the father's robe. The ring would probably be a family signet ring, a symbol of reinstatement to sonship. The family signet ring that they would use with the wax seal to seal documents and to be their official insignia for the family. What is the father doing here? The son, by his rebellion and his horrible actions, has made himself not a son. He, he made that very clear. He's gone away. 
Only the Father could restore him to sonship. And that's what the Father's compassion is about. He puts shoes on his feet. Sandals were worn, uh, but not typically by slaves. So if he was going to receive him as a bond slave, he wouldn't have given him sandals. Also notice where it is the father cuts off the son. The son has his prepared speech. He says, I'm not worthy to be your son. Make me a bond servant in your household. The father cuts him off before he gets to that point. The son says, I'm not worthy to be your son anymore. And the father says, I am going to restore you to sonship. That's what his compassion does. That resolves the problem. That addresses the actual need. Because remember, this is one part of the three parts of the parable, right? The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And in the lost sheep, that Pastor Mark read that earlier, the man has to go out and find the sheep, put it on his shoulders and carry it back home. Lost sheep don't find their way back. The woman loses the coin and she has to sweep the whole house and search everything and then she finds it. Lost coins don't find themselves. And here we have a son, but it says the son comes back. Can a lost son find himself? No. In what way does the father find the son? It's in this very statement. It's in what he does, covering him with his robe. His own robe. It's with putting the family signet ring on his finger. And so they celebrate. As he says, celebrate because he was dead. He was not a son. Now he is a son. He was not uh, alive, but now he's alive. He was lost, but now he is found. So the father's compassion leads to the father's covering. Now remember, in this passage, Jesus is referring to himself and his ministry. The people coming to him to hear from him. Jesus is referring to his covering that he is going to give for us. This is what Christ did for us on the cross. He provided a covering for us. We were utterly shamed and dishonored by our disobedience. We are like the son. We have rejected God. We said, God, I don't want to do any, uh, anything to do with you. We've rebelled. We've sinned. We've dishonored ourselves. We brought shame upon ourselves. We are no longer sons. But God does what only God can do. And he receives us back by covering us in the blood of Jesus Christ. Just like our first parents... Adam and Eve in the garden, when they were naked after they had sinned, and God provided a covering of animal skins for them. Only this time in Jesus Christ, God didn't just make clothes of skins to cover our nakedness. He clothed us in the very righteousness of his perfect son, Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption. And we stand dressed in that righteousness, clothed. By the perfect blood of the Lamb. That's the compassion of God. That's how God finds us. We can't rescue ourselves, but God can do it for us. So, that's a very big general overview of the the passage. 
of the parable of the lost son. What does this teach us then about biblical compassion? Well, there's a couple of things. And then we get compare these to other places in the Gospels where it talks about Jesus and his compassion. So the first thing that this tells us is that biblical compassion addresses our real problem, which is our sin. True concern for the suffering of others confronts our rebellion, our shame and dishonor, our lostness, our alienation from God, however you want to put it. It doesn't ignore those things. It addresses the real problem. It's the father's compassion that moves him to address his son's lostness, not simply his hunger. Because think about it, the son isn't even thinking about this. The son isn't thinking, how do I become a son again? He's not even thinking along that line. He's just looking for food. For him, that's the crisis. But for the father, the real problem is the loss of his son. And that's what his compassion causes him to address. The father could have said, you're right, son, you've dishonored me, you've dishonored your whole family, you've dishonored your community, you've made all these horrible choices, so I'm going to, yeah, I guess I'll let you be a bond slave. He could have done that, and he would have had a lost son forever. But his compassion doesn't do that. He doesn't stop with just the felt need of the son. It addresses the real issue, the real problem. Biblical compassion confronts our alienation from God. As unbelievers, it is, compassion is calling them to repentance and belief. We see this in Jesus' ministry. Let's look at Mark chapter 6, verse 34. Another example where Jesus has compassion. It says this. When he, that is Jesus, went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so what does he do? He began to teach them many things. That's Jesus' ministry. He had compassion on them, so he began to teach them. Well, what did he teach them? You may wonder, what is is it his teaching? Well, Mark tells us that. If you flip over to the beginning of the book, Chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the message of the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. That's the message of Jesus. That's what Mark is telling us. That's what Jesus taught. That's what Jesus said. We also know this because this is also what the disciples taught and proclaimed. Flip ahead a little bit to chapter 6, verse 7. And Jesus called the twelve, and he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And then jump down to verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. That's the message. Jesus was moved to compassion by seeing these people who were like sheep without a shepherd. They're helpless, they're lost, and they need to hear the message, repent and believe. Be Reconciled to God. That's our real problem. That's what compassion, biblical compassion is. To call those who are outside to be reconciled to God. But it also applies for us as redeemed people. If you're sitting here and you've believed in Jesus, you've heard that call, you've responded, you've repented, you are a child of God. 
Biblical compassion also is us as believers calling one another out of our tendency to pursue sin. It's calling us away from following after our passions. Because that is our biggest problem. It's calling us back to God. One of the most compassionate things that a brother or sister in Christ can do for you or for me is to call us out of and away from our sin. That's biblical compassion, even when it hurts. And I'll tell you, most of the time when that happens, it does hurt because we have to face our shame and our guilt. But that is true compassion. Remember Pastor Tim's message from a couple of weeks ago from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 11, that discipline, though painful, is a sign of love. The Lord disciplines those he loves. Remember Pastor Mark's message on Paul's thorn in the flesh from 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, that God allowed Paul to suffer torment to help Keep Paul from the sin of pride. God's compassion includes those things too. Because God's compassion, biblical compassion, is concerned with the main problem. Our sin and our tendency to sin. Biblical compassion addresses that problem faithfully. And it is not compassionate for a church to let its members continue in sin without disciplining them. That is not compassion. And can I just say this? As one of the pastors, we have a lead pastor here, Pastor Mark, who does most of the preaching here. One of the the most compassionate things that your lead pastor does for you is he gets up weekly and he tells you the truth from God's Word. That's compassion. Does it hurt sometimes? Yes, it does. Have I been with you and you sit in the pew and you go, wow, that, that really hit me. But it's compassion because it's addressing my real problem. That's biblical compassion. And it is not compassionate if we just ignore those things or if as a church we let our members continue in sin without disciplining them. In the same way that it's not compassionate if you go to the beach and you let your child swim in a rip current, a riptide. That's not compassionate. Oh, yeah, I mean, you're going to get dragged away and probably drown, but go ahead. That's not compassion. That's hatred. Now, if you go to the beach and you go, oh, we can't swim, what are your kids going to do? They're going to cry. They're going to be sad. They might be angry with you. It's going to be some pain for them. But compassion addresses the true problem. And honestly, too many churches hate their members Because they won't warn them, and they won't discipline them. So we have to address the real issue of sin. Now, if we're talking about somebody who's not a believer, does that mean, you know, when you see somebody and they're struggling and they're not a believer, you should just say, repent and believe, and that's all you should do? You know, if if your neighbor gets in a car accident, their car is totaled, and they don't have a car, they don't have a way to get to work, should you just stand on your lawn and go, repent and believe, sinner? Is that what I'm saying? No, that's not what I'm saying. 
What it does mean, though, if you go over there and you say, hey, you know, I know your car, you got an you know, accident, you don't have a car, but I can, I can drop you off at work while I'm going to work. And if you do that, you're doing that for your neighbor primarily because you recognize that they are without God, not because they're without their car. That's the reality. We have compassion when we recognize the real need. So that's the first thing about biblical compassion. It addresses our real problem which is our sin. The second thing is biblical compassion is transformative. True concern for the suffering of others seeks to bring about change. Think about this in the story. The father's compassion transformed the son from death into life, from lost to found, from not a son back to a son again. Now, there's a pervasive idea today, it's just kind of around, that compassion is just affirmation. That compassion is just affirmative. That if the, the son came to the father, the father should just go, well, tell me about all the hardships that you've experienced. He would just nod his head and say, that's really, that's really terrible, isn't it? There's an idea around that compassion is simply affirming someone's suffering and misfortune. Let's take it into an example in our day that could happen. You might have somebody say, I've had a lot of emotional trauma from my childhood. This is sadly very common. And then the person would say, so I can never really get close to anyone because of that. And you could just say, oh yeah, I'm so sorry for you. That's really tough. Yeah, I recognize that hardship. And just affirm it. But that is not... Biblical compassion. Because biblical compassion, as always, the biblical reality is deeper, greater, and truer than the false ideas of the world around there. And biblical compassion transforms. Look again at the father's statement, which is the crux of the whole story. My son was dead, and now he's alive. I don't know what could be more transformative than that. Do you? What could be more transformative than the compassion of our God who gave his life to call us out of darkness into his marvelous light from dead in our trespasses and sins to alive together with Christ? What's more transformative than that? What's more compassionate than that? And remember, the son says, I'm not worthy to be your son. And the father could have just said, yeah, you're right. You're not. I affirm that. But that's not what he does. And the lost son comes back to life when the father covers him in his robe, puts his ring on his finger. Jesus' compassion transforms. We see that not only in Luke chapter 15, but in lots of places where it talks about God's compassion. Look at uh, Matthew 14, 14. Just turn there real quick. Again, Jesus having compassion. It says this. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. Am I in the right place? Sorry, I'm at the verse before that, verse 14. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. That's transformation from sickness to healing, right? That's what Jesus did. He didn't just say, I I affirm you. This is really hard that you're sick. He transformed them. Look at Luke, back back to Luke, chapter 7, verses 13 through 15. And 
And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and he touched the bier, and the bearers stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. A mother whose son had died. He transformed the son from death to life. Now, transformation implies that there's something that needs changing, right? If we're all just fine and everything's okay, we don't ever have to change, then, yeah, we could just affirm everything and there's no transformation that needs to take place. But if there's transformation, that means that something needs to change. And I find it odd that some Christians, they just kind of have this view that Jesus kind of came to affirm us and just, he just came here to tell us, oh, yeah, how great we are. I find that strange because whenever you see Jesus interacting with people, there's transformation, which means they needed to change from the state that they were in to what Jesus did for them. It's not like Jesus' compassion just coming out of a pat on the head. Oh, yeah, I hear you. That's not biblical compassion. Whenever you see Jesus move to compassion, what follows is transformation. And the gospel transforms our suffering because in Christ, none of our suffering is meaningless or wasted. Compassion means transformation. And sometimes that's transforming our circumstances. The suffering goes away. But sometimes it's transforming ourselves. We are what needs to change. But God is doing a work in us. The power of the gospel is such that even if your suffering never changes, in Christ you are being transformed from glory to glory. We are being transformed through Christ. Now imagine if you go to the doctor, you haven't been feeling well, you go to the doctor, do some tests, you come back, the doctor says, you know, um, I'm sorry to tell you this, but uh, you have cancer. Wow, that's tough. Okay, um, so doc, what are we going to do about it? Well, I don't know if you heard me, the doctor would, says. Uh, you have cancer. Yeah, I know, but like there's treatments, right? I can do, well, yeah, but I, I think you just need to really sit with the fact and struggle with the fact that you have cancer. Okay, I get it, doctor, I've got cancer, but what are we going to do? How do we respond to this? Well, it's, you have cancer. If your doctor was like that, you would find another doctor. Yes, you need to wrestle with the reality. You have to recognize the reality of what you have. But the point is, what's the treatment? I have, a, I have an issue. I have a problem. I have suffering. I have pain. I have all these things. What's the solution to that? Can I just be brutally honest? Maybe I've already been brutally honest. But can I just be brutally honest here? So much of Christian counseling and Christian advice and Christian books and Christian podcasts really just takes that same route. It's just affirm your suffering. Affirm your situation. Affirm the sins that have been done against you. And it doesn't move to transformation. As though we've forgotten that we serve a God who rose from the dead. Who delivered us from our sins and rescued us from the domain of darkness. 
we have gone from death to life. Jesus Christ is raised to new life. And if you have faith in him, you will be too. We have so much of a greater message than to just sit and affirm our struggles. And do we have real struggles? Yes, we do. We do. We go through some difficult and terrible things. And this is not negating what Scripture says, that we should weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And I'm also not saying that you should treat your friend who's suffering as a project. Like, i got to go fix them. Okay, I heard pastor's message. I'm going to go fix them. Because that's really not compassion. Usually that's just because we're uncomfortable with their suffering. And if we could fix them, you know, I'll tell them about this article I read about this, you know, this study. And maybe they should try that diet. And that will probably really help them. Because we want to fix them. But that's not compassion. I'm talking about transformation. A believer in Christ where you're encouraging them. Hold on. Hope is coming. God is working. And even if you wake up tomorrow and the suffering is still there, God hasn't forgotten you and it's not meaningless. That's transformation. And lastly, biblical compassion requires sacrifice. True concern for the suffering of others means absorbing the cost. Now think about the parable of the lost son. Who is it in that parable that sacrifices? Who bears the cost? The answer, it's the father. He's borne the cost of the sin that was against him. And he's also the one who bears the cost of the fatted calf being killed, the robe being put on. Who bears the cost to redeem us? It's God. And this is connected to the first two points. Compassion addresses our problem, sin, and it transforms. And in order to do that, there's a cost. There was a cost for our salvation. As Christians, we don't, we don't just say, oh, there's no cost. That's not the gospel message. The gospel message is not that there's no cost. It's that Jesus paid the cost. God himself paid the cost. The cost is incredibly great. We can never pay it, but we don't have to because Christ paid it for us. But there's a cost. And when we have compassion for someone... There's a cost to us too. This is the difference between feeling sorry for somebody and feeling compassion for them. You know, I felt sorry for the people who were homeless and panhandling, and I'd give them my 17 cents. I wasn't doing that for them. I'm doing it for me so I could feel better. Yeah, 17 cents is a pretty good price to not feel bad about yourself. But true compassion is going to cost us something. And I think that's partly why we've embraced just affirmation. Because it's affirming people, that's free. That doesn't cost us anything. But if we're going to have biblical compassion, it will cost us something. The father embraces the son. And by the way, you know, he smelled like a pig, right? We know that. He's dirty. He's unclean. And yet the father embraces him. This is what Jesus did for us. And that's the foundation of why we can sacrifice for others. Not for their redemption, but to show them love and to have compassion, to encourage them and help them, to support them. Which again is why I'm concerned by Christians who have this idea that Jesus is just kind of a nice guy to come and tell us how good we are and how, you know, oh, I love you, I love you. He doesn't cost him anything. He doesn't have any 
real power to heal us, as though he just felt sorry for us. No, Jesus paid the cost because he had compassion. And Jesus himself, again, our last passage that we'll look at, Mark chapter 10, he tells us what his mission is. You think Jesus, oh, was his mission just to run around and just kind of pat people on the head and say, here's a little healing, here's a little food? No, Jesus tells us himself what his mission was. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the cost. That's the point. That's what Jesus' his whole mission is about that. That's how lost sons are found. You may have heard the story about first century Christians living in the Roman world who took in and adopted the babies that were left to die. Because in the Roman world, at that point, if you didn't want a child or if it had a defect or it had a disability or whatever, they would just leave them out to be exposed to the elements and die. And the early Christians had compassion for these children who were being left to die. And so they would take them in and raise them as their own. If you've raised children, you know that takes a lot of sacrifice. There's a lot of cost to that. They didn't just feel sorry for them. They took them in. They bore the cost. And the early Christians did this, and it was noted by the Romans. They did this because they recognized what Christ had done for them. That Christ had sacrificed himself for them. The question for us is are we prepared for the sacrifice it takes to have compassion? Because if we're going to have biblical compassion for others, it's going to be a sacrifice. When that person who is suffering for doing good, you know, they, there's a corporate mandate that comes down at their job. You have to affirm these things that are contrary to Scripture. And one of our brothers and sisters says, I can't do it anymore, and they lose their job. Are we prepared to make the sacrifice to support that brother or sister in Christ? Or maybe it's a sister or a brother who's suffering the consequences of their own sin. They've done something sinful. They've done something foolish. And we have, are we prepared to make the sacrifice to forgive them when they repent? To bear that cost of their sin against us? Are we prepared to make the sacrifice for a loved one who's going through a hardship, a grief of lost spouse or physical pain that won't go away and they keep praying and they keep praying and God's answer is, my grace is sufficient for you? Are we prepared to make the sacrifice to sit with them and love them and weep with them and pray with them and enter into their suffering? Or proclaiming Christ to our family members who don't want to hear about it, who reject us? Are we ready to make the sacrifice? Because to have biblical compassion, we're going to have to sacrifice. So what biblical compassion, what is it? Well, biblical compassion addresses our greatest need, our sin. Biblical compassion transforms us. And biblical compassion requires a sacrifice. And we can have that kind of biblical compassion toward one another because of what God has said to us in Christ Jesus. You are my son. You are my daughter. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was not a son, but now I'm a child of God. Let's pray. 
Father, I thank you for your compassion, true and deep and sacrificial compassion on our behalf, that you call us out of darkness into your marvelous light, that you've dressed us in the righteousness of Christ, and you call us children of God. And we could say, Lord, and truthfully so, God, we are not worthy to be called your children. We've shamed ourselves, we've dishonored ourselves, we've rebelled against you, and yet you cover us and you invite us in. But would we understand that compassion you've shown us so that we can show compassion to one another and to the world? We thank you, Lord, we worship you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.